All right, so we are in Ephesians 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And I'm going to begin with uh, a consideration of an article from The Atlantic. Uh, And in that article, it's called, uh, This Is No Way to Be Human. Um, The article talks about how we have moved away from a nature-focused society to a nature-less society. And in it, the author of the article um, interviewed an an astronomer. And this astronomer uh, helped uh, discover the most distant known object, uh, a small galaxy far, far away called the GNZ 11. Uh, And this uh, astronomer was asked if he felt personally connected to this this place that he had found. And the astronomer just went on to say that uh, it's, it's rare to feel that, to experience that, because everything is now being discovered through screens where at one time astronomers would use actual telescopes to see things far away. Now it's just through a screen that they are able to see those things. And so, you know, with all the technology successes that we have, uh, technology has greatly diminished our direct experience with life and with nature. And the article talked about how 99% of humanity, uh, we lived close to nature, talked about how it was only four to 5,000 years ago that we started having roofs over our head. And so, again, a lot of history has been even without that. In recent history, te- television, less than 100 years ago, we have internet, last 30 years, iPhones, and last 14 years. And the article landed here. Said, but I think we have lost something else in our removal from nature, something more subtle and harder to measure, a groundedness, a feeling of connection to things larger than ourselves, a calm against the frenzied pace of our wired world, a source of creativity. Went on to say, again, it is not the technology itself that should concern us, it is how we use that technology in balance with the rest of our lives. It's interesting, this is a, a, a secular article but it points to the fact that there's something missing. It's like we've lost the art of paying attention to life. We've uh, adopted so much of technology, and there are some goods there, but we've no longer become skeptical about how many of those things are actually harming us. See, humanity has lost the art of paying attention, paying attention to ourselves, paying attention to others. We can live in a room with other people that we love and be on a screen and physically be present but emotionally not be present. We've lost the art of paying attention to the world around us, and and more than anything else, we've lost the art, the beauty of paying attention to God. And as followers of Jesus, we are invited to lean into this ancient practice of paying attention. This is a practice that Paul reminds us of, something of deep importance that helps us navigate through spiritual formation. So in 55 AD, Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, and he's sitting in this prison cell with probably a candle lit maybe late into the night, and he writes to these people that he spent several years with. And he understood the immense pressure of their day, the internal fleshly pressure that they felt and the worldly pressure around them. He felt it when he walked the streets of the port city of Ephesus. He was well aware of how that move, that drive, even the technology of their day, the pressure and busyness of their day, how it caused his own soul to shrivel and the church around him. And he wrote to encourage them. He knew that there was an enemy seeking to kill and destroy. And you can hear his heart being poured out into these, letter, these, these words that we've been reading. And again, with this candle lit, he writes to this church with love and care. He writes to remind them of their calling, and he reminds them to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. 
And one of the things that we find as we navigate through this is Paul challenging that church then and us today to pay attention to our lives. And we're going to navigate that together. Ephesians 5 verse 1, it says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in, a man, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I just ask that your spirit would move among us. I pray that you would invigorate and bring to life, take my weak words, and that you would um, cause them to hit our hearts, Lord, words that are from you. I pray that you would highlight words that aren't. I pray that you would blow away. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Ephesians 5, we begin with this word, therefore. We've talked about this before. That therefore statement is critical to understand context. We, we can't just open up Ephesians 5 and forget that there's not an Ephesians 1 through 4. Like, there's a critical to build. Any letter is going to need to have the former words to guide what you're reading currently. And so Ephesians 5 is tethering itself to what we've already read in Ephesians 1 through 4. Again, in light of your calling, Ephesians 1 through 3 had nothing to do in some ways with you and everything to do with God's calling upon you, his movement upon you, his grace upon you, his kindness upon you, his, and mercy grafting you into his family, adopting you into his fold, all the things that God has done for you. And in light of those things, we actually are called to live different. That's the call of salvation. It's not just you get to heaven free. You're invited here and now in this moment, if you're following Jesus, to live a life worthy of the calling that Jesus has given to you. And Paul reminds us of that. And simultaneous, man, it's hard to do so. And so Paul is trying to encourage the church. If you have spent any time following Jesus in your life, it is a challenge to actually seriously follow Jesus. And he's well aware of that. And he offers us Though we're weary and heavy laden, he's offering us a different way. And he says, be imitators of God. This is gateway language of discipleship. Again, don't forget all the times that Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. That was the statement, the baseline that Jesus gives to all who are called uh, into his fold. All Christians are called to follow Jesus. There's not tears. There's not like the, the casual civilian, and then there's like the military. There's like, we are all fo- called to follow Jesus. It's not like some can just uh, accept the get out of hell free card, and then if you want to get really serious, you can actually follow Jesus in your life. Like, there's only one way, and that way is to follow Jesus and submit your life to Jesus and cling to the grace of Jesus. And so in here, Paul uses that same language. Be imitators of God. Follow me. The journey of a disciple or a learner or a student is, is not a class. It's a, it's a lifelong submitting to the ways and life of Jesus. So again, when you hear the language, be imitators, hear the words of Jesus, follow me. This reminder of we receive all that God has done for us, and in return we reciprocate and we respond accordingly. 
He unpacks this fleshly nature that uh, he began to reference in Ephesians 4. We got this initially in Ephesians 4. And by the way, Nick did an amazing job last week. Always does. Love when he shares. I'm always encouraged by him and the way he communicates in his heart uh, for this community. But one of the ways Paul laid out walking in that identity was this active language that we read last week about putting off and putting on. This idea of putting off and putting on. We see this fleshly interaction, this, this kind of dual kind of nature in our own lives that we heard in Ephesians 4 and we continue to hear in Ephesians 5. This implies the journey that we are on. We all live within this human frame, you and I do. And in this human frame, we are tempted by the world, we're tempted by the flesh, we're tempted by the devil. In this present frame that you and I live in, we have these temptations, these draws that we feel, and simultaneously, if you follow Jesus, in this frame, we are being redeemed and empowered by the Spirit of God. So this is our life. Our life is filled with this counterway of Jesus and the way of Jesus, simultaneously colliding inside of our lives. Things we want to do, we are drawn, the things that we're not drawn to, things that we want to do, sometimes we're drawn away to do other things. And things that we're not drawn to do, we're drawn away to do. And the Bible doesn't ignore that. Paul is reminding us that this is normal. Wanting us to see our responsibility as disciples to pay attention to this part of our life. And so he says this, this idea of putting aside, putting aside ways that are contrary to Jesus and, and putting on the character and calling that Jesus has given to us. And, and then he provides in the text three deadly sins that rage within us. We have to understand this, that there's this collision course in our soul. And so there's deadly sins, even though we're redeemed, even though we're empowered by the Spirit, there are these deadly sins that are within us, that can be uh, raging within us. And the first is uh, immorality, sexual immorality, he says in verse 3. The original language here is this word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's the desire, it's this desire confusing itself with sexual freedom with power over another. Jesus uses the same language in Matthew 18 when he talks about marital infidelity. This word uh, immorality, sexual immorality, and then impurity. He's used that a few times in this text. In verse 19 of chapter 4, he talks about the same language, this impurity. And then he uses this language, covetousness. It has sexual connotation, but it goes beyond it. It's this idea of idolatry, greed, you could say, idolatry is, again, baseline making good things ultimate things. And this idea of, of becoming greedy with areas of our life. See, none of these things are found near the kingdom of Jesus. None of them. And in a sexualized society where greed was paramount, Paul writes to this redeemed community. And he says, this is who you were, but it's not who you are. This is who you were at one time, sexual immoral. Purity filled with covetousness. But this is not who you are. Again, in this context, the church was once under the illusion of Artemis, the Greek goddess, the one who was the goddess of infertility, the one who was, there was a connotation to prostitution. You once were under her rule, but not anymore. You once were under the illusion of Demetrius, who we meet in the book of Acts, who spent his life trying to uh, gain silver. And when Christ and his kingdom showed up, it jostled the economic system of that day and a riot occurred and Demetrius led it. You once were under the sway of Demetrius, seeking the greed of your day, but not anymore. 
Again, we see this collision of these two realities happening. You once were here, but not anymore. It's not among you anymore. And today, we live in a sexualized society where greed is paramount, very similar to the church in Ephesus. And we're reminded to allow the redemptive ways of Jesus to bring healing and to be our guide. See, the ways of Jesus are not oppressive for us. They never have been. They never will be. People have stolen the ways of Jesus and changed them and made things oppressive at times. But the actual ways of Jesus are always freedom, never oppressive. Always liberating and never enslaving. The ways void of Jesus always lead to slavery. The ways of Jesus always lead to freedom. See, it is the character, the creator's good design to see intimacy and sex as a gift in the context of marriage. In the ways of this world, it's, it's selfish. In the ways of this world, is about what you want alone. But in the ways of the kingdom of Jesus, it's selfless. It's mutual, intimate pleasure of all the things that the Bible talks about. See, the design of sex isn't bad, 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 bad. You can marry this good. You know how destructive that can be for people? When all they hear that, that sex is this gift, but it's bad, 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 and then you get married and it's good, like, that can really negatively affect people. But the reality is it's a gift in the right context. Sex is a gift by God in the right context. We live in sin and there's dynamics there, but man, it's a gift to us. It's, sex is beautifully given as this picture of covenant that you could be fully known and fully loved at the same time. Sleeping together without covenant will never lead to what God designed it to be. It's always designed to be in the context of covenant, mutual commitment, care unto death, loving one another with care. When sin comes in, it wreaks havoc there. This is the vision of Christian marriage when it comes to sex. John Stott says this, The reason why Christians should dislike and avoid vulgarity is not because we have a warped view of sex and are either ashamed or afraid of it, but in Because we have a high and holy view of it as being in its right place God's good gift, which we do not want to see cheapened. Just put aside these former ways of life, sexual morality and purity and covetousness. Paul then provides this beautiful prescription of a way, a weapon that helps us counter these deadly sins that we feel in our soul. Which leads to the second point, which is about thanksgiving Uh, He invites us to pay attention with the weapon of thanksgiving. So we see this phrase, I I was just struck by it in in verse 4. It says, Let there not be filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be what? Gosh, that's so weak. You got an extra hour of sleep last night and like three of you responded. Let's do it again. Um, But instead let there be... That's right, that's right. So we have lost the art to pay attention, but Jesus invites us into a life of thanksgiving toward God. See, a thankful heart is an antidote to the tempting powers that are mentioned. I don't know if we know the power of contentment and thanksgiving. I mean, secularism, we're going to hear all about it over the next couple weeks. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, and then we don't hear about it for another 11 months. But, man, I don't know if we know the power of thanksgiving and contentment and the ways of Jesus and like being thanksgiving towards God, not just the object that's been given, but the source that like the author who provided the gift giver, like allowing it to be tethered to him. There's something about that that 
causes our hearts to be liberated in a really powerful way. Thanksgiving is a recognition that I have all I need. I have all I need. There's power in that phrase. I have all I need. It confronts lust. Right? I have all I need. Confronts the lust that we feel in our soul. It confronts, it dismantles coveting. You look at your neighbor and your friend, you compare. But I have all that I need. It breaks the knees of greed. The way it chases us down. Man, I have all that I need. It reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I'm in the care of someone else. I don't need to fend for my own life. God has provided. He is my provider. And I have all that I need. Something powerful about that. That confronts the draw of our flesh. And causes us to remember everything that I have. has been a gift for me. For my creator. He's honest. He says, at one, one time, you, you used to be this way. You used to act in this way. And in some ways, I think that's an exhale for us. When he mentions these realities, see, the Bible doesn't ever pretend like you had your life together. You might pretend. The Bible doesn't. And so you look a little silly when you do. But it awkwardly is aware of how broken we were. The Bible is awkwardly aware of the brokenness that we once were. It is aware of where you were, but it doesn't leave you there. It's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that it offers us more than just staying where we are. It invites us into something much more wonderful. The gift of the gospel cuts us open. It tells us that we have cancer, but it also shows us that there's a way of healing. Something really powerful about how the gospel opens us up, but doesn't just leave us with a diagnosis, but it causes us to remember that there's a healer that can provide such things for us. See, the church is like a hospital. It's a home for the sick. We are a home for the broken. There is nobody that we... This place is not a place for people that have arrived. We are a hospital for the broken. But as Alex and I were traveling back from Portland from a conference we were at last week, I was thinking about how the church is also like an airport because everyone is walking around with baggage, right? We all have it, and none of us have the away baggage. Like, we, we think that we, we have the good kind of baggage that's the, the nice kind, the kind that everybody wants. Like, we all have the, the rugged, kind of nasty baggage that's been around from, like, three generations. It's like, oh, kind of gross, but you know it's your bag when it's going around the carousel. We all have baggage. We're an airport, man. We all carry baggage. I got all kinds of baggage in my own life, and Jesus is in my heart, but yeah, grandpa is in my bones. I still have areas of of weakness and brokenness in my life. I, I also have done things in my own life that have affected me. Some of my baggage is how I prematurely was introduced to porn when I was eight years old. At a birthday party that I, I went to and a kid brought out a bunch of magazines. Eight years old. Walked out of that room and his parents were watching uh, what I call, I don't know the real name, but I just call it Skinamax. Like the, the, it was just right there in front of me. And it was eight years old. First introduction to sex and pornography. And that shaped me. Dark years in my, in my teen years. And then that journey as a teenager into my early 20s, Jesus began to invite me into another way, a redeemed way, to put off my former way and to put on the ways of him. I'm 37, I'm 14 years in a marriage. I know I'm three steps away from falling back into that muck. I recognize that I have baggage and 
I am convinced that Jesus died my death and rose with power to give me new life. He put the power of sexual brokenness and baggage to death, and I don't have to live defeated anymore. Like there's, a, there's a better way out. Like The gospel story isn't just about the age to come, but here and now, the power of the sin that you deal with, Jesus dealt with. And in Ephesians 1-3, through 3, we see that he was placed above every principality and power. We see that he has authority that's unlike any other authority that this world knows. And he sits with power on his throne, and he has taken the power of our sin, and he's dealt with it. And though the presence of sin exists, the power of sin has been put to death. And that brings liberty to our soul. Though we know, man, we're called to consistently put off the ways of our former life. We're given this opportunity to put on. We're not called to live a life of defeated, being defeated and then die. But an invitation to put on the ways of Jesus, the new ways that he offers to us. Man, I'm actively and intentionally living a life of trying to fight against that baggage. And I remember that I'm not defeated. St. Augustine had a similar story. In his confessions, he talks about the chronicles of sexual struggles that he had in his own life and the difficulties he had in his 20s and, and beyond. And then Jesus encountered him and changed his life. And it culminated in a phrase that he said that's now resonated through the, the, uh, the centuries. He said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. There's nothing that this world will provide for us that will give us what we need, what we long for. I mean, Thanksgiving pulls that out of us. He says, but now you are light. He begins to enter into this. I'm going to read this text and um, speak a little bit about it. And so in verse 7, therefore do not uh, become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says in this great hymn, Awake, O sleeper, and rise, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He says that you were once darkness, but now you are light. Hallelujah. That is true of you and me. This is the point of the letter, to lather you with hope, to lather you with grace, that you've been adopted, you've been sealed with the Spirit, you've been lavished with grace while dead in your sin. God has given you mercy upon mercy. He's raised Christ from the dead. He has all power and all dominion. There's no ruler or temptation that can outpace Jesus and his power. You have been made new, and now we are invited into a new way of life. Don't settle for the fraudulent gospel that stays on Sunday. It's been offered into something more. And thanksgiving with God as our source is a weapon that helps us fight the puny powers and realities of sin. Which leads to the third point, which is this. We're called to pay attention by examining our life. Again, we've lost the art of paying attention, but Paul offers us a gift in paying attention. To use the Stoics, 
Um, Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. John Calvin in his institute said, without knowledge of God, or without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. To use one of the modern poets, Taylor Swift says, on the, on the contrary, on the contrary, she says in her latest album, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, so poetic and powerful. I'll, I'll stare into the sun, but never in the mirror. On the contrary, the wisdom of this world is to ignore your reality and just to live your not life and not pay attention. Not pay attention to God, not pay attention to yourself, not people pay attention to the deep realities of your life. But there is wisdom and an honest, regular examination of your life. Multiple times in this section we just read, we hear twice to expose, to be made visible, to cause light to shine, to awaken these kind of language, uh, the, these descriptors that we have been given. And then in verse 15, we read this phrase, look carefully then how you walk. Again, expose, light, pay attention. Another translation says, see, when is the last time you paused and looked in the mirror asking the question, am I becoming who Jesus has invited me to be? Like when's the last time we've actually taken a moment, paid attention to where our our walk is, where our life is going, and ask, am I I actually walking, am I actually becoming who Jesus has invited me to be? This is not about a career path. It's about your character. It's about your soul. It's not about, are you, are you in the right fit for your work or should you get another job? Don't hear me say that. I'm, I'm talking about the, the character and the deeper realities of your soul. This is the kind of paying attention that is profound for a follower of Jesus. Look carefully then how you walk or pay attention in that way. Where am I not in alignment with King Jesus and how he is redeeming me? See, examining our life allows us to be able to pull back the curtain and ask, am I living like I have been called? Am I living adopted, sealed, loved, redeemed, given lavish grace? Am I living in that way? And secondly, am I, am I walking in a manner worthy of the calling we've been called? See, reality is our friend and honest assessment as we swim in the healing grace that we've been given is so profound. And if I'm honest with you, if four, six, eight weeks go by and you haven't examined yourself, it's a scary place to be. We sing the the great hymns, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? We, We accept that reality. We accept the reality that we need to put off and put on. We accept the reality that Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa's in my bones. But are we examining and considering where's the trajectory of my life, and is it moving me towards the kingdom of Jesus and his ways and character, or is it moving me towards the ways of this world? We will never stumble into godliness. You will never stumble into godliness. You will never stumble into being a good parent. You will never stumble into good marriage. You will never stumble into deep character. You will naturally become the person you never dreamed you would be. And so it makes sense that it matters for us to pay attention. If that's our trajectory of of not becoming the person we didn't think that we'd ever be, and we, we will not stumble into godliness, then it takes intentionality to pay attention and to consider and expose and see where we are. I believe one of the best ways... Not the only way. One of the best ways to examine your life is to create space to reflect through the discipline of journaling. 
Don't lose me. Like I said journaling and now you're gone. Like, can you just stay? Please, just give me a few minutes. The discipline of journaling. Journaling is an ancient practice. Yes, it's not modern. This is not like a new, you know, uh, Eastern kind of approach. Not at all. It's an ancient practice that goes back before the time of Jesus. The Bible is filled with people who journaled. David in the Psalms. Half of the Psalms are David journaling. Psalm 51. He's just, had an, he's just uh, gotten a woman pregnant. He's, he's just killed her husband. And he writes Psalm 51. Search me, O God. He, he pleads with God. He approaches God with brokenness. He approaches God with, with a raw side that we, would need to, we, we should learn a thing or two from. And the Psalms are lathered with mo- honest moments of reflection. And Jeremiah, in his grief about the fall of Jerusalem, he wrote... Lamentations, filled with entries of pain and sorrow and clinging to God's faithfulness amidst not feeling it. Historically, we see all kinds of men and women who have written in beautiful ways uh, in in a journal-like approach. Again, St. Augustine opened his heart in the famous Confessions. We see Jonathan Edwards found the practice of journaling to sharpen his thinking and deepen his devotion. Again, it's not a modern exercise, but an ancient gift of reflection, helping you pay attention. So journaling is simply creating space to think about and apply the gospel of Jesus in our lives. Adele Calhoun, in her book about spiritual practices, says this, On the pages of a journal, in the privacy of a moment, we can take tentative steps into truth in in our feelings, hurts, ideas, and struggles before God. Over time, repetitious themes of sins and compulsions and hopes and concerns emerge. We begin to recognize our besetting sins, limitations, and desires. So there's a few ways that journals, journaling can help. Journaling helps you to pay attention to where you are. As a normal, I, I try to journal once a week. It's become something I used to hate, so for those that are... I used to hate it. Yeah, amen. I get some amens. I used to hate it. I used to... This is what I used to do. Optimistic, 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 blow up. Optimistic, 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 blow up. I would stuff, stuff, stuff. It's going to be positive, it's going to be positive, and then it, it wasn't. And I began, as I went through an extensive time of, uh, of counseling, I began to realize that that's not the best approach to life. I need to be honest with my fears and my sadness and my insecurities and my celebrations and my joys and actually present them before God. And I've, I've forced myself into a, what used to be an upstream discipline, a discipline that was not easy for me. And now it's something that I cannot live without. It's become a, an essential part of my faith in discipleship with Jesus. And so every week, for me it's on a Friday, I'll try to carve out space. And I'll ask this simple question, where am I? And for those that don't have an imagination, I'm not asking, like, I am a 2315 whatever address. Like, I'm, I'm not talking about where I physically am, but where I am emotionally, where I am spiritually, where am I? And so typically what I'll do in an average week, I'll, if I have moments of, of highs and, and lows, I'll actually jot those just enough to jog my memory. I'll write those down in a note on my iPad. Just a little, a little enough to remember what, what I was feeling. And then on Friday, I'll process it. And I'll process, like, where was God in that? Where, where was I feeling in those fears, those insecurities, those f- feelings of failure, those things that happened that were disappointing to me? I begin to process some of that together. Put a finger on the pulse of my soul. 
And I try to schedule this because, again, if we're prone to wander, again, if we're trying to put off certain ways and put on, I want to evaluate where I am. I've recognized in recent weeks, if, I, if I'm honest, I've, I've become pretty snarky in some areas of my life. I'm like, that's not Jesus. Some of it's okay. I think Jesus was a little bit sarcastic. I like to defend that. But, but I also know that he was always kind, always filled with love, and never using people as a means for an end of a joke. And that for me, like, I've, I've pro- I put that on my journal. I've processed some of that. There's some, uh, a way of Jesus, just like grandpa on my bones, and not the way of Jesus. Man, I want to repent of that. I want to turn. It's an opportunity to re- repent and to, to turn. And then once a month, I'll, I'll put in my schedule. Again, I don't do this without scheduling. I, I don't think you can stumble into godliness. And so I'm trying to grow. I'm a broken man trying to follow Jesus. So I schedule this junk. And if, whether you're type A, type A, you're not going to stumble into just an organic, flourishing follower of Jesus. It takes intentionality. And so once a month, I'll put in my schedule you know, just a little bit of time that I carve out. And it's a, respe- a, a space to reflect on goals and my rule of life. Or like, where's my marriage? Have I gone on a date with my wife this last month? I had one-on-one time with my kids, like values, like things that are, matter to me. And I'll look and I'll say, okay, this last month, I've been horrible. Okay, let's schedule a day. I'm going to text our babysitter. Like, it's really practical to make sure that I am, I am actually becoming who Jesus has called me to be. See, journaling includes a space to consider thoughts and feelings. It's raw, it's honest. And I think that's where we get tripped up. I was talking to some people this morning and, uh, about this and they're like, how do you journal without saying dear diary? Like, you, you just don't have to. I don't know who taught you guys a dear diary. You just don't. And you can let it be raw. It should be unedited. You're not trying to prove anything to anybody. You're just trying to use this as a means to get something out. And it's not the only way to do it, but it is a way to do it. It becomes this unedited, proof-free way to be honest in your moment and honest with God who is in that moment with you. It's a beautiful way to do that. It's not a, the goal isn't a perfect document. So for those that like to have that as a standard, just don't, or you're never going to do it. It's a judgment-free space to be transparent and allow the gospel to meet you. I mean, some of my darkest seasons, I don't know how I would have made it through without journaling. And allowing the gospel to meet me, the love of Christ to meet me in ways where I, was, I felt like I was falling apart and unraveling. It was in that space where I was able to allow my brokenness and the good news of Jesus to collide in a way that was profound for me. So not only does it help us in paying attention to where you are, but it also helps us to remember the work of Jesus and the growing gratitude. You know, Psalm 77 says that I will remember the deeds of the Lord. How are you going to remember the deeds of the Lord if you don't remember the deeds of the Lord? Right? So I've, the amount of times that I've gone back to my journal, months later, I've now, I'm now on like my fourth or fifth year now, and it's like, it's in my, it's so essential to me. I'll go back to several years ago and see like, man, struggles that I had and God showing up. I would have forgotten all that stuff. I'm able to go back and see Ebenezer, see these moments of like, man, God was faithful. And in a moment today where maybe I'm feeling the same thing I felt back then, I'm like, man, God showed up in that moment. It reminds us, it actually stirs gratitude. It stirs thanksgiving. I'll go back at the end of the year and I'll kind of read through my journal. I'll look at all the moments that God showed up in my life. It's powerful to allow this to be a part of who we are. Pay attention by examining your life. There's no rules for keeping a journal. Try it. Um, yeah, and if it, writing isn't your medium, figure out another way to process. But what's needed for us is a space to, uh, what, what Paul tells us, to look carefully then how you walk, to pay attention to your soul. 
what's going on. See where you need to put off areas that are counter to Jesus and put on areas that Jesus is inviting us to put on. Friends, we've lost the art of paying attention and therefore desperately are in need of creating a well, uh, a habit of, of paying attention that would be so beautiful for us as a community. So I invite you into that. I invite you into that space. I think it's something really powerful for us as a practice, as a way forward for us to consider, to try out, just to put it on your calendar sometime this next week and try it. Try it for the next month. I know with most things, if you, if you try something, whether it's with counseling or something like this, if you try it once or twice, it doesn't work, you kind of kick it. And it's like, man, give it, give it a try. Give it some space. And if you have questions, reach out to me. I'd love to, I'd love to process with you around that. Jesus invites us into a beautiful way of life. He invites us into a redeemed way of life. He has come and he's chased us down. He's ransomed us. He's taken care of the power of sin. And he is inviting us into the space that I want to invite us into. So friends, um, I submit this to you this morning. Look carefully then how you walk. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for being so intentional and kind to engage our here and now and not just our future. Thank you when you, when the sun was darkened, and you cried out, it is finished. You looked forward to our own areas of brokenness, and you bore those things, our sin and our shame, upon you. And when you said it is finished, it echoed into this moment, our past moments, our future moments. We thank you, Lord, for the way you have rescued us. We thank you that though you were placed in a tomb, three days later you swallowed death forever. Lord, give us a, a fresh picture of the power of Jesus, the tender power of Jesus. Thank you that you meet us in these moments. Give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.